Paul has left Athens, and he's about to head on in his journey. After these things, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, and having recently come from Italy, Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome, he came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. He was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own head. I am clean. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man, Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord and all of his household. And many Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in a, by night in a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong of a vicious, or of a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But there are questions about words or names in your own law. Look after that yourselves. I'm unwilling to judge in these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out for the sea of Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sincrea, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea, he uh, went up and uh, greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he departed and passed successfully through the Galatian region and Pergia, strengthening all the disciples. And a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being only acquainted with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that your word is powerful and your spirit goes before us. And when we share the truth, 
The only way people will believe is not our eloquence and our reasoning, although you use those gifts. They'll believe because you turn their hearts, you open their eyes. But Father, use us as you desire. Help us to be willing. Be with Tom as he speaks today, and I pray that our hearts will listen to you and that you will move upon us in ways in our heart that we need to change and be more like you so that the world will see you, not us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. This morning, we're actually only going through verse 17, and then uh, we'll pick up with the rest of chapter 18 next time. But uh, I want to start uh, with actually with an Old Testament episode uh, and before we launch into this New Testament passage. Back when God was setting the this, this stage to judge his own covenant people in Judah, God called out a young man, likely no older than in his late teens, to be his spokesman to the kings and spiritual leaders of Judah. That young, young man's name was Jeremiah. God gave him a, a sacred assignment, and it was an assignment that would make men of any age uh, very uh, enthusiastically say no thanks and run for cover. I'm going to read the heart of God's assignment to Jeremiah as Jeremiah recorded it himself in the first chapter of the book that bears his name. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. All that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. How many teenagers have gotten an assignment like that? He goes on a little later in the chapter, in verse 17, God says to Jeremiah, now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all that I command you. He says it again, speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, lest I dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land. And they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Twice in that stunning and uncompromising commission, God commands Jeremiah not to be afraid of the very powerful men to whom God would send him to whom he, the men that he would call to repentance, to turn to God. And the rationale that God gave 
that very young man not to be afraid was exactly the same both times. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. In short form, God's command to this, his young spokesman was, Fear not, for I am with you. And the way that Jeremiah would demonstrate his obedience to that command was by speaking with no compromise what God had commanded him to speak to powerful people who definitely didn't want to hear what he was going to say, powerful people who had the earthly authority to destroy him. But earthly authority is not what determined the outcome. The command, fear not, only makes sense because of the promise that comes with it, for I am with you. Our passage this morning is about that same command and that same promise, this time given by God to the Apostle Paul. I said much earlier in this series that I believe Paul's conversion story is like a, a stripped-down, very focused version of every believer's conversion story. In much the same way, I believe that Paul's assignment from God is the template for every believer's assignment from God. The assignment to be used by God to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth. The command and the promise that God gives to Paul in this morning's passage is the same command and the same promise that gives you and me the indispensable clarity and confidence that we must have in order to carry out that assignment. On his second missionary journey after Paul had started new churches in the Macedonian cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. He then came south to the region called Achaia, that we know as Greece in most of its geography, where he spoke to the philosophers gathered at the Areopagus in Athens. We looked at that last time. After continuing then for a time in Athens, explaining the good news to those whose hearts the Holy Spirit had opened, Paul proceeded across the Isthmus of Corinth to the city of Corinth. And that city, I want to give you a little bit of background on it. As we learned from our recent studies in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Corinth was one of the most influential and important cities in the whole Roman Empire. It was located at the south end of a very narrow stretch of land called an Isthmus uh, that separated two seas. And the geography of Corinth placed it, in, it placed it in the most weather-protected and easily defended route for sea trade between Asia and Rome. And because of that, that amazingly unusual geography, by Paul's day, Corinth was prosperous at a level that was far above most of the other cities to which Paul would bring the message of Jesus Christ. Corinth attracted all manner of people seeking fortune and power and, of course, seeking the, the self-indulgent pleasures for which that city had become famous by Paul's day. Public festivals celebrating dozens of different man-made idols were available virtually year-round in various parts of the city, along with 
the ready availability of prostitutes whose services, temple prostitutes, whose services provided much of the flow of money that funded the operation of those idle temples. Corinth was the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire, only worse. Corinth had a population of roughly 200,000, which was extraordinary for cities of that era. It was one of the largest cities in, in the empire. Soon after arriving in Corinth, Paul befriended a Jewish couple named Aquila and Priscilla. Luke tells us that that couple had recently fled to Corinth from Italy after the Roman Emperor Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, the, there's a, a particular second century historian named Suetonius who referred to riots that took place in the city of Rome during the reign of Claudius that precipitated this expulsion of the Jews. And very interestingly, Suetonius mentions that those riots were precipitated by some controversy involving a man named Crestus. Uh, many scholars uh, believe that that's a reference to Christ. And I concur with, uh, with those scholars, and I believe that's what was going on. That's why, why uh, Claudius uh, expelled the Jews. Now, Aquila and Priscilla, and, and just to explain that a little bit, I believe that, that there were many Jews from Rome who were in Jerusalem for the Passover at the time that Jesus was crucified and resurrected. When they went back home, within the Jewish places of worship, there was a whole lot of talk about what would have happened. And there was a lot of disagreement. And some of that disagreement became violent. And that's what precipitated these riots. Aquila and Priscilla are the same couple that Paul later mentions in Romans 16, verses 3 and 4, where he, he refers to them as, quote, fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life, Paul says, for my life, they risked their necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So within just a few years, by the time Paul wrote the book of Romans, a few years after, after uh, these events, Aquila and Priscilla had impacted numerous churches and had returned to live in Rome, hosting a house church in their own home. Verse 4 of this morning's passage tells us that during the early part of Paul's time in Corinth, he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks, that's Jews and Gentile proselytes, to Judaism. During that time, Paul was covering his own expenses through a trade uh, that he shared with Aquila and Priscilla, and that trade was tent making. There's been some discussion about whether it was tent making or leather working, but I, I believe it's tent making. Paul worked diligently with his own hands, and he preached in the synagogue every Sabbath. Paul was being very strategic here when it came to how his ministry was supported financially. And there's a lesson here that we do not want to miss. Again, a few years after this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul wrote to these same Corinthian believers, defending 
the right of gospel workers to make their living from the preaching of the gospel. In that passage, there is no question that Paul expects the churches to joyfully support the ministries of Christ's frontline ambassadors and faithful teachers of the word, of men like Paul. And no community of saints to which Paul ministered was more able to support his ministry among them than the Corinthians. But during the year and a half that Paul lived in the materialistic and self-indulgent playground of Corinth, he never asked for or accepted any financial support for his ministry from the Corinthian believers. It was very intentional. And that's what makes verse 5 of this passage so surprising. In verse 5, we learn that when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia to join Paul, Paul's preaching ministry in Corinth shifted gears and turned from part-time to full-time. That's because Silas and Timothy brought money with them when they came. His financial obligations were now covered, so he no longer had to work to make tents to provide for his own needs. He could focus on proclaiming the gospel and teaching the church full-time. So how did that change happen? Well, where did Paul get the money that freed him up to begin devoting himself full-time to the ministry of preaching and teaching? He got it from the Macedonians, from the believers in cities like Philippi. Actually, especially Philippi. Silas and Timothy brought significant financial gifts with them from the Macedonian believers for the support of Paul's ministry. And these are the same gifts that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 through 17. Gifts that Paul says were given exclusively by the church in Philippi. Now, here's the surprising fact that should have gotten the rapt attention of the Corinthian believers. During the same year and a half that Paul was living and ministering right there in Corinth, not only did he not accept financial support from the saints in Corinth, he did accept financial support from the saints in Philippi. And what made that especially surprising is that the average net worth of the Corinthian saints was very far above the average net worth of the Philippian saints. In his second New Testament letter to the Corinthian saints, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul makes that point very clearly. He, he lovingly, but rather sternly, makes sure that the Corinthians get this fact. He rebukes them for their reluctance to follow through on their own commitment to help out to participate in a gift that Paul and his co-workers were gathering from all the churches to take to the, the, the impoverished and heavily persecuted saints in Jerusalem. The Corinthians said they would contribute, but they weren't doing it. And so Paul takes them to task over it. And at the same time, Paul praises the extraordinary generosity of the Macedonian churches, which included the church at Philippi, because they were contributing to this gift for the Jerusalem saints. Listen to the first four verses of 2 Corinthians 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God 
which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty, their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Which saints? The saints in Jerusalem. See, this was Robin Hood with a very strategic twist. Paul received from the poor to give to the poorer. He did not receive from the wealthy. He didn't receive for his own ministry from the saints at Corinth. And when it was time for them to participate in the gift for the Jerusalem saints, they weren't giving. While Paul was in their midst ministering to them, he refused to accept financial help from them, not to condemn the Corinthian saints who struggled so much with the sin of materialism, but to teach them. God's priorities for money. From cover to cover in the Bible, what we do with the money that God puts into our hands demonstrates what we actually consider to be treasure. Jesus makes that point very forcefully in Matthew 6. If you and I believe that the building up of Christ's church for the advance of the gospel on earth is every believer's God-given privilege then it will be impossible for any person to stop us from giving financially to move that goal forward. If we do not give for the advancement of the gospel, then we are not on the same agenda as God. It's that simple. When Paul first began Preaching full-time in Corinth, his ministry still focused on the Jews at the synagogue. Verse 5 says he continued solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. I just want to real quick make sure we don't miss that. That Jesus was the Christ. We've seen that focus over and over in the book of Acts in the preaching of Peter, Stephen, Philip, and Paul. The very essence of their message was that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-promised Christ, the Messiah that all the prophets talked about for dozens of generations before Jesus came from heaven to earth and fulfilled those prophecies. Beloved, the gospel that we preach to this world filled with sinners who are as lost as we once were is the truth about a person. And salvation comes to, to those who embrace that truth about that person, and God has been revealing that truth as long as he has been talking to human beings. This is, comes up over and over in this book. The Jews at the synagogue in Corinth persisted in rejecting the good news of Jesus. Verse 6 says that they resisted and blasphemed. The word blasphemed means that they reviled and despised that which is sacred. So Paul shook out his garments and said to those unbelieving Jews, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. Paul had done that very same thing in Pisidian Antioch in chapter 13 when the Jews in the synagogue there had contradicted his message and had blasphemed against Jesus. 
But in neither case did that mean that Paul stopped going to the synagogues first in every city to which he brought the gospel of Christ. The very next chapter, chapter 19, says that Paul spent three months in the synagogue in Ephesus. Now, here in, here in Corinth, he stopped going to the synagogue. And we're going to find out how that plays out in a, in a minute. But we must not miss the forcefulness of Paul's words here in Acts 18 to these Jews who showed such great contempt for the message of Jesus the Christ. Paul shook out his garments and he said, your blood is on your heads. That is as strong a warning as could be imagined in a Jewish context. I can't help but think at this point of the earlier words of the Jewish crowd in Jerusalem that had demanded the crucifixion of Jesus. In Matthew 27, Pontius Pilate, who had found no cause to execute Jesus, washed his hands in front of the Jews who were calling for Christ's crucifixion. And he did so to highlight Pilate, to highlight his assertion that he was innocent of the blood of Jesus. And through that visible symbol, Pilate was declaring that if the Jews continued to press him to crucify Jesus, the blood of Christ would be on their heads and not on his. And with astonishing arrogance, those Jews said to Pilate, May his blood be on us and on our children. Those words give me chills every time I read them, just as Paul's words do here in Acts 18. Last Sunday in our worship meeting, Jimmy Ellis said to us, let no one who crosses our path go to hell without being warned and prayed for, for there is hope only in Christ. A couple of days ago, Jonathan Feltz told me about a conversation that he once had at his front door with a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses in which they dismissed and then openly mocked the passages that he was showing them directly from God's word as he called them to trust in Jesus' work on their behalf alone and not on their, on their works. When, when they persisted in mocking God's word, Jonathan shook out his shirt and he explained that action based on this very verse, Acts 18.6. One of them walked away, but the other one went from arrogant mocking to visible fear as he pondered the earnestness of Jonathan's warning and he considered the eternal consequence of turning away from what Jonathan was showing him directly from the word of God. I'm hopeful that we'll get to see that man in our Lord's kingdom. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 7 through 9, there is a very stern warning that God gives to his faithful ambassador, Ezekiel. And the warning is about warning. He says, Now, as for you, son of man, I have appointed you as a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and you will give them, the rebellious people in Israel, you will give them a warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, 
That wicked man will die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you, on your part, warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. And I believe that's talking about temporal judgment, not eternal judgment, but it's very, very forceful. Far too many Christians seem convinced that our assignment from God is first and foremost to be polite, to avoid any offense to people when we're trying to share the gospel. Now, it is certainly true, Titus chapter 3 makes this clear, it is very true that we are never to malign or to insult anyone. We are to remember that we once were as they are. And we are never to declare ourselves to be morally superior to any fellow sinner in any way. But beloved, there is no greater offense to this godless world than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you cannot make it unoffensive. It's not possible. You and I have not been called by God to elevate politeness over saving truth. The day God saved me, I was an altar boy who thought he was good with God. I thought I was really holy. But I was lost and dead in my sin. And the reason that I have eternal life now and forever is because God used my high school biology teacher to point out to me that I was a wretched and helpless sinner just like everyone else and that I could do absolutely nothing to make myself acceptable to a perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God. Only the atoning blood of Jesus that paid my sin debt and only the perfect righteousness of Jesus covering me as a free gift that I did not deserve would ever commend me to God's approval. I needed to be warned and I needed to see the grace of God right alongside that warning and that's what God did. Beloved, speaking the truth in love to lost sinners means that we are called to warn those sinners of the terrible consequence of turning away from the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Those guys that you see downtown sometimes carrying the repent or perish signs, the guys that even many Christians like to ridicule, are actually a lot closer to fulfilling the church's assignment in the world than Christians who are so busy making sure that they do not offend that they never actually tell people the truth about sin and righteousness and judgment. They never tell people about the terrifying consequence of rejecting the only provision for men to be forgiven and to have eternal life. There is nothing even remotely loving about whitewashing sin or about hiding its penalty. After Paul proclaimed this very sobering warning to the Jews who were blaspheming against Jesus, 
he left that synagogue and he set up shop at the home of a worshiper of God named Titius Justus. And where was that man's house? It was right next door to the synagogue. Isn't that great? <laughs> we also find out that Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, got saved. He believed in Jesus together with his whole household, and he too became part of that new church that was meeting next door to the synagogue. In verses 9 through 11, Luke relates another exceedingly important episode in Paul's life and ministry. He says, And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Now, I hope you were listening to the introduction when I was reading from Jeremiah, and I hope you're making the connection. Listen to these words again. The Lord said to Paul, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Now, I want to clarify one thing. The words, I have many people in this city, do not mean that there were already a whole bunch of Christians in Corinth who would protect Paul. It means that God, from before the foundations of the earth, of the world, before creation existed, God had chosen many people in the city of Corinth, and he wasn't finished saving them yet. And he intended to use Paul to save them, many of them. And so until that task was done, Paul was invulnerable. Not because Paul had invulnerability in himself, but because until God's finished with you, nobody can take your life. It's not possible. God would not allow the enemies of Jesus to shut Paul up. It was not possible. The Lord who spoke to Paul in this vision is the same Lord that Crispus believed in the verse before that, before that, and that Lord is Jesus. Do you guys realize that Paul didn't have one encounter with Jesus? He had multiple encounters with Jesus. There are several in the book of Acts. There are two commands that Paul received from Jesus in this vision. They're the same commands that God gave to Jeremiah. Do not be afraid any longer and go on speaking, do not be silent. In keeping the second command, speaking, Paul would demonstrate his obedience to the first command, not fearing. After Paul lowered the boom at the synagogue in Corinth, telling the Jews that their blood was on their own heads, he no doubt expected things to get kind of dicey for him and his co-workers in that city, and for all the new believers who were meeting at the house next door to the synagogue, Paul had already experienced the murderous intent of Christ-despising Jews in city after city. And guys, Paul, more than probably any other child of God in his day, understood the depth of that hatred of Jesus because the most murderously militant Jew, the most murderously militant enemy of Jesus that Paul had ever known was Paul. Before Jesus blinded him to make him see. 
Now that he was on the other side of that murderous intent in a city filled with Jewish self-righteousness and pagan self-indulgence, Paul found himself struggling with fear. The wording that's used here that says, that says, do not be afraid, the New American Standard adds in, in italics the words any longer, that's legit. Because the, ver the verb tense here used with the negative means to stop doing something that, that was already being done. Early in his first New Testament letter to these same Corinthian saints, they likely wrote from Ephesus, Paul said to them in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3, when I came to you, brethren, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. We would do well not to water those words down. Because if we do water them down, we create a fake version of godliness that will drive some Christians to despair. God commands us not to sin, yet he tells us in 1 John 1, 8 that if we say we have no sin, present tense, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. God also commands us not to fear, but brothers and sisters, if we say that godly Christians never experience fear, we're creating a facade that no Christian will be able to live up to. Paul was without a doubt one of the most courageous Christians that ever walked this earth, but Paul knew very well what it was like to feel afraid. He needed to hear and heed this command from God, not once, but continually, just like you and I do. And we need to understand what the command means. It's not about how we feel. Obeying the command is not about how we feel. It's about what controls our words and our actions. We see this both in, Paul, in, in God's command to Jeremiah, and we see it in God's command to Paul. Our Lord's command here is not don't ever feel fear. The command is never let fear stop you from speaking the truth. And the only thing that frees us up to do that is the truth about God. We submit our fear to the truth that God declares about himself. We agree with God that when he promises that he is with us, he's actually with us. And so we can keep on speaking the truth. Again, it's the same thing that God said to Jeremiah. When God commissioned the teenager, Jeremiah, to say things to kings that would ensure that those kings would seek his death with all of the resources at their disposal, here's what God said to that teenager. Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you will go, and all that I command you, you will speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares Yahweh, the great I am. Do you see the unbreakable connection there between what God commanded Jeremiah to do, which is to speak the truth, and, and God's command to him not to fear? So let me say it again. This is important. The command not to fear in both of those contexts means act on faith, don't act on fear. When you're afraid, keep on speaking. 
what I have commanded you to speak. That's what God says to us. Knowing that I am with you as your protector and I am infinitely more powerful than those who are threatening you. When we do that, when we actually subordinate our fear to God's promise, our fear stops determining what we say and do. And our fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, starts determining what we say and do. The only one in, the, in all of creation, and he's the one who created, but the only one we will ever encounter who controls any blessing or any curse is God. Everything else is just an instrument. All right, bear with me a few more minutes here. The concluding episode of this passage in verses 12 through 17 bears out what God just promised to Paul. If you talk to many missionaries, you'll hear stories of God using or overriding men and women in positions of great earthly authority to protect his people and to keep the proclamation of the gospel on track. Many of us have heard those kinds of stories from missionaries that came out from this, this congregation. That's what we find in the concluding verses of this morning's passage. In verse 12, Luke introduces a man named Gallio, who was proconsul of Achaia. That means that Gallio was governor of most of what we now know as Greece. And among the cities under his governance were Athens, Sincrea, and Corinth. The biggest and most influential of those cities by far was Corinth. It was up to Gallio to keep the peace in that city. When the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat of Gallio, they said to Gallio, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But before Paul could even open his mouth in his own defense, Gallio took care of his defense. Gallio said, this is about your law, not mine, and I'm not getting involved. He just clocked out. And a man named Sosthenes, who had just replaced Crispus as the leader of the synagogue after Crispus came to faith in Jesus, well, he didn't do so well. The passage ends, an unidentified group lays hold of Sosthenes and beats him in front of the judgment seat after Gallio told the group that, that he was not going to render any judgment here. And it says Gallio didn't even care about that, that beating. There's no way to know with certainty what precipitated the beating of Sosthenes. I suspect that the Jews were upset with him for not doing a sufficiently persuasive job of convincing Gallio to take action against Paul. But the big news about Sosthenes, if the names line up here, and I think they do, is that later, a couple or three years later, in the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians, 1, uh, 1 Corinthians in the first verse of that letter, Paul sends greetings to the Corinthian saints from Sosthenes, our brother. Now, I'm going to wrap it up. The first time that I was ever shoved into an MRI, you guys know what an MRI is? Magnetic resonance imaging? I experienced the most irresistible, undeniable fight or flight reaction that I have ever known. It was freaky. When all my eyes could see was white, six inches from my face, every fiber of my being told me that I had only two options, and that was either to get out of that tunnel or die. But in that moment, my body and the emotions that my body was wired to produce were lying to me. 
They were telling me something that actually had no connection with reality. I was actually a whole lot safer in that MRI machine than I would have been than I was driving home after the procedure. So on the basis of what I knew to be true, I stayed in the tunnel. I didn't enjoy it at all. I had cassette tapes, you remember what those were? With the Bible on them, I was listening to the Psalms trying to maintain my sanity. But I stayed there, and you know why I stayed there? Because I knew that the difference between what I felt and what I knew to be true. When it comes to the impact on our well-being of giving money to the work of God, how do we know what's true? That was the subject of the first part of this passage. When it comes to the effect on our personal safety of speaking that which God has commanded us to speak to people who don't want to hear it, how do you and I know what's true? We know what's true because God has told us. We know without a doubt that until God has finished using us as his ambassadors, nobody on this earth can shut us up or do away with us. And we know that when God is finished using us as his ambassadors, nothing in God's creation can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We will enter into his presence to dwell with his people in the place that Jesus went to prepare for us. And the sin and the curse will be done. We know that with rock-solid certainty. We know that God has promised to give us what we need for each day. Jesus made that very clear. And we know that our real treasure, the treasure that, has, that, that no power on this earth can destroy or take away from us, is not of this world. It's the treasure of our union with Jesus Christ and with his people. That's what we get to take with us. That treasure is absolutely unassailable. Brothers and sisters, we know how to live. We know what to say because we know what's true. And we know what's true because God has told us. Loving Father, thank you yet again that you have spoken. And you have left no guesswork when it comes to the things that transform our lives, that define our lives and our purpose. We know what's true because you have told us and that truth is in Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Master, the one in whom is all that is life indeed. We give all the glory and all the credit to him and Father, we pray that we would be mightily useful ambassadors in your hands, not because of anything that comes from us, but because of your greatness alone. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.